lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Jeremy Lee in the building and every guest that you ever needed. Sports cards after hours keep the hobby heated. Updates, hobby talk like you never seen it. Sports cards live and nothing could ever beat it. Sports cards is a lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Welcome to another episode of Sports Cards Live with your host, Jeremy Lee. All right, everybody, and here we go. Welcome to episode number 218 of Sports Cards Live. It is Saturday night, February the 24th, 2024. My name is Jeremy Lee. I would like to thank everybody who tuned in last week with our guest, Coach Co. You can check that episode out on the YouTube channel next saturday slight warning i'm not yet sure if there's going to be a show i will be away on vacation i'm taking the setup but we'll see how the whole environment is and if we can do an episode so stay tuned watch for notifications on youtube and of course on my instagram account as well now i would like to ask you to please join over half a million people who have downloaded the center stage app across across both ios and android for quick comps and accurate card identification the center stage marketplace featuring super easy listing and reasonable transparent fees is coming soon. So please join me in supporting the great team they have, the innovation they are undertaking, and let's help make Center Stage a great place to buy and sell singles. Also, please use protection and practice safe swaps. Veriswap is an app and middleman service that lets you trade cards securely through the mail. Every transaction up to a million dollars is guaranteed by their guarantee. You can check them out on iOS and Android and join me and Veriswap founder Raymond Lee on Instagram Live every second Tuesday for the Veriswap Trade Desk. Tons of fun, that little 10, 15-minute show is. Also, please welcome Filth Bomb Breaks to the sponsor crew here we have at Sports Cards Live. The team at Filth Bomb offers live case and box breaks, and as we learned, they do so with integrity and responsibility. If you enjoy group breaks and are looking for a company to break with, check out Filth Bomb. They are streaming on Fanatics Live, four channels, seven days a week. I want to shout out Hobby News Daily for your daily content feed and Leighton Sheldon Just Collecting Vintage Breaks will be joining us for the Vintage Spotlight segment shortly. Also, you can now buy and sell tag-rated cards on ComC, Pokemon, Lorcana, and other rounded corner TCG cards are now eligible for grading. Visit taggrading.com if you value transparency, consistency in grading. Thank you, as always, to all you loyal viewers, podcast listeners. If you're not yet subscribed, please Take a moment and do so. I greatly appreciate it. And as always, your questions and comments are in play. So let's get to it. Tonight's guest started in the hobby in 1997 when his father took him to a card shop, bought him a pack of 96 finest basketball. He pulled a Kobe rookie in what was the first pack he ever bought in his whole life. And his brother convinced him to trade it to him for an Allen Iverson rookie card. He's been in the hobby ever since. And every paycheck has a portion of his cards going to a portion of his paycheck going towards cards. In 2019, he started applying his data analytical skills to sports cards and launched his YouTube channel, Pancake Analytics, in 2020. His favorite players of all time, Patrick Ewing and Derek Jeter, and his favorite teams of all time are the New York Yankees, New York Jets, New York Knicks, and the New York Rangers. He's originally from, you guessed it, Brooklyn, New York, currently hailing out of Tampa Bay, Florida. Let's bring him out. Tom Ferrara, welcome to Sports Cards Live, buddy. How you doing? Doing great. Really excited to be here, Jeremy. I'm really excited to have you here tonight, Tom, Pancake Analytics. I think we have to start with, you know, the most obvious question, which is, what are Pancake Analytics? Pancakes, you like your you like your pancakes and maple syrup? Tell us about that. Let's kick it off. Yeah, great question. Uh, yeah, so uh, pancakes have been a family tradition every Sunday. Uh, I come from a big, large Italian family. There's five boys, one girl, and just to keep everyone together in Brooklyn, we'd have pancakes every Sunday. Uh, then, you know, it stuck with me all my life. And I, once you're stuck to something, you start looking for it in other aspects as well. Uh, a lot of my live presentations on analytics, collectibles, happen actually at Comic-Cons. It also has happened at the National. And so how I've incorporated it there is i found okay comic book panels where deadpool cooks pancakes or pokemon where pancakes is integrated so i kind of went backwards extrapolated it and said oh look pancakes is in everything we do so 
Pancake Analytics, you get the full meal here. <laughs> <laughs> a nice, simple, uh, you know, real nice explanation right there. Makes good sense to me. We're going to get into, you know, a bit about your hobby history. We'll get into your professional experience expertise, what your credentials are that make you a data analyst. I'm not sure what degree that that requires, but you'll you'll tell us. Then we're going to get into the meat of the of the, of the episode. But I want to say hello to the chat, which I do every single Saturday. Phil Daw, first of all, he leads right out and says, prices for hockey card singles is abysmal. Will this change in the next five years? We're going to get into how you and your your models, your your data models, predict these things. Jake Dahl, what is going on? 86 is here. Frank Estella, good to see you, pal. Thank you. I'm glad you like the studio. I'm very happy here. Al Terwell, Waxstat, what's going on, buddy? Rooney, Ronnie, the Rascal Superdog, first time. Welcome to the show for the first time, Ronnie. Glad you are here. We got... Linda's first, Michael is with us. What's going on, Michael? Jeff McMahon, Todd McDonald, Zach Swisher, the professor is here. Mike Truman, been a while. These, I just want to, these are not giant cards. They look like giant cards, you guys. These are actually original paintings by original paintings, each and every one of those. And just to give you a little bit of a peek, if you're first time here, I got more up there as well. 20 all together. And I love having them here with me. 90s hockey collector, what's going on? Robert Scott, good evening to you. Bob Boozle says, this episode will reveal whether we eat steaks <laughs> or ramen noodles. <laughs> Let's find it out. Steve Splenda says, shout out. Welcome to the show, Steve Splenda. Bob Boozle, Mrs. Butterworth is held in high regard in the Ferrara home. There you go. Pancakes ain't just for breakfast. Jerry Hodge, what's going down? Skeppy is here. Found treasures. Lauren Florio is here. Good evening to you. And the Currency Project. Glad. Thank you for liking my background, guys. It is new. It is new. Took about 515 live streams to get into a new studio. But here we are. Back to you now, Tom. Tell us a little bit about your hobby history. I mentioned it in the intro before you were even on the screen. Give us a bit fuller of an explanation of that. And then we'll get into your professional experience. Yeah. So a really personal collection is Knicks, Yankees, Jets, uh, currently, right now, I'm collecting uh, Jalen Brunson cards, uh, you know, because, you know, really big superstar of the Knicks. He actually wears my uh, number that I wore in Little League. I'll say I won't even act like I made it to any <laughs> competitive level, yeah. you know, Italian, Brooklyn. Uh, but, yeah, the hobby history, uh, you mentioned just picking up when I could with every paycheck, budgeting. You know, so already you get the analytic mindset here. Oh, the guy actively budgets. He probably has a good sealed collection. It's analytics. So, yes, I keep sealed boxes. Uh, the goal is one day opening up with my son and my daughter. And hopefully, you know, there's some players that are still relevant, good to pull from this era. <laughs> Who knows? That's always up for debate. But it's also about collecting moments for me. Uh, so whew, I'm going to age myself, right? So the prime watching of the Knicks for me in my childhood was the 90s. So got to see Ewing finally make it when, uh, you know, Jordan was retired and loses to Olajuwon, <laughs> our, one, our one shot. That was a great series. But yeah, so it's really hearted in the 90s and that nostalgia. And it's really has lasted through till now. There was no dips, no breaks, just a lot of fun and diversity. Nice. I, I love it. I love it. I, like you, didn't take really any breaks since the 80s. Uh, I, I slowed down the second half of the 90s, which is now my favorite era of cards. I wonder if that's a coincidence or not, but it is the way it is. You mentioned a goal of yours is to one day break those unopened boxes, those that unopened wax or product with your kids. You know, I've got a I've got a run of unopened Opeachy hockey packs from 70 to go. 89. And I've always said, you know, if I don't decide to sell them first for some extraordinary reason, I've always said I won't. Oh, because people are always like, how can you not open those? Well, I like the packs. It's all about the pack for me. But maybe like on my deathbed, I will crack open those packs as, you know, a last hurrah to life, really. But we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully that's a long ways away. Tell us a bit about, you know, what. What your experience is, your, your formal education that allows you and gives you these insights and skills to build models to predict card values into the future. Yeah. So I have a master's in business 
uh, specializing in forecasting, data science, machine learning. Uh, I've been in career analytics for over 10 years now. Uh, I've worked for Walt Disney World Company uh, doing their inventory forecasting. I've worked for L'Oreal USA, inventory forecasting. So you see there's a lot of like actual application of forecasting. Uh, currently now I work for a marketing firm specializing in customer segmentation across all verticals, working with very diverse data. Nothing's as diverse as sports card data, in my opinion. You know, we'll talk more later on about the interesting data I append to not only sales, but to really forecast that behavior. But it's a lot of just doing what most will dare say that you can't do or won't do. I do it for a living. Predicting the future, crystal ball. Right on. I love it. So you spent, you have a career and you also spend a lot of time analyzing data, building models, predict, building reports and publishing them for the hobby. How much time do you spend on analyzing data for the hobby? Yeah. So obviously the whew, career job is top priority. So when I, I analyze data for the hobby, it's usually early in the morning when I wake up, but I'm doing it daily or it's the weekend or do a late night. Uh, there are luckily tools out there that have the data already nicely clean for me. i.e., like card ladder. They do most of the segmentation work and then I can run models that I have from the career life ready to go. So I put out a really high quality product. I feel on my website and it looks like, oh, this must be taking this guy months. But it's like I do all the rep work in the day job. Been doing it for over 10 years. So hopefully, you know, I've made something really complex seem really easy, but easy to follow as well. Because what's going on behind the scenes is very complex. I'm sure you're using all sorts of advanced Excel functions and you're building formulas and... uh other, you know, advanced stuff that most people aren't really doing. Uh, so that one of the beauties of Excel, I'm guessing Excel is one of your tools. I mean, maybe you're using something even more advanced, but one of the beauties of a, of a, a, a software program like Excel is that you can have all the complex stuff in the background and then pop out the reports and the data that you want to share because, you know, not to bore everybody with all the assumptions and the underlying the, all, everything that's underlying that, that it would just be over everybody's head. Is that, is that kind of fair to say? Yeah, it's fair to say. So I never want to limit myself how I can answer a question. So Excel is definitely one of the tool sets. Uh, mostly I'm using Python and RStudio. And what those are, they're open source, advanced statistical software you can use. But there's definitely answers and solutions in Excel too. If you're in the in the jam, if you know, like, the day job took longer than I expected, or it's like, oh, I have to, you know, get something really clean right before the national. Just go, go straight to Excel. Keep it simple. <laughs> yeah. It's funny yeah. to think that Excel is the simple way uh, when, you know, you're using things like Python, which I don't even know about, but I'm sure it sounds very complex and intricate and you need some skills to use it to, to build models and such. Uh, let's say hello to the loud collector, Phil. What's going on? I like this 86 as another great looking guest with the same haircut as Jeremy. Starting to see a trend. Yeah, we go to the same barber. Uh, Foul of five balls here. What's going on? Michael says the key to keeping unopened wax unopened is to make sure you have all the cards in that set first. That's a good advice <laughs> right there. Jeremy M, what's going on? Mark Santucci, I fly out tomorrow morning. Steve Splenda said, can pancakes predict if I'll buy more KD cards? Can you, I don't know that you can predict an individual's behavior, but you can, you can predict the general's behavior. Is that right? The general behaviors. And I don't want to spoil too much what I got cooking in the kitchen, <laughs> but I'm actually working on more like individual predictive products. I call them more of like quality of life ads. I'm actually doing a proof of concept with uh, Patrick Ryan has been kind enough to let me use his data. So we're going to see if we can build like something really cool for collectors. And oh, interesting. That's a use case, Steve. 
Can I predict your behavior? Phil, Phil Dahl wants to know, did you use Terapeak for your data? And maybe just let us know, what what do you use for your data? What what, what inputs do you use? You mentioned uh, Card Ladder earlier. Any any other ones? Yep. So uh, definitely Terapeak. Uh, Terapeak now stores up to three years. Uh, what I really like Terapeak for is, so not everything in Card Ladder has an index yet. Like I've consulted with them on three indexes. But also when I'm looking up sealed product or I want to get really specific with my queries, like I can just hit the Terapeak API. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, when it's more of like the non-sports side, I'll hit other APIs as well. So just about the other data sources I can pull in, TCG player. I know it's not sports related, but I don't want to limit myself to one data source. Uh, another good one. So one thirty point as well. They'll do API feeds. There you go. Jerry says Excel is fun, but I'm using using Lotus one two three <laughs> at home. <laughs> good stuff. And uh, Jason Wormy joins us. What's going on, buddy? Happy birthday to you! All right, Tom. Let's talk about what you're actually doing here, predicting future card prices. You're building models. You know. I've got a couple notes here, things like player performance, FOMO. Why don't you, you know, just tell us a little bit about how do you do this? How do you predict? What assumptions are you making? How do you take historical data and project it into the future? Do you include macroeconomic issues as well, implications, interest rates, predicted interest rates? How team performance, player performance, do you do you do you add in uh, any sort of adjustment for the, the 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 chance that a player does something stupid and you know has the, has to be bought out or has to has their contract terminated? We've seen some of that in hockey in the last few days. There's a whole bunch of things. I'll let you just sort of go with that. Yeah, great. So every analysis I do, every model I build starts with what collecting question I'm trying to answer. And that'll determine what caveats, what assumptions I have to make. Uh, I do have a couple of reoccurring analysis, so we'll start there. Once a month, so monthly I'm producing a forecast. Uh, The method is called the Holt Winters Time Series. What's really great about using that approach, it takes into seasonality into account. Uh, It's basically triple exponential smoothing. So it takes in level and average. <laughs> I know we're both going to be losing hair after hair. this conversation. <laughs> My beard's going to fall off, right? <laughs> so, and what's great is like when it comes to sports, you know, there are seasons, not just cut and clear, you know, off season, on season, but think of football cards, the draft, you see a spike, uh, no matter what sport it is, you'll see spikes in July, thanks to the national, you know, a lot of sales activity. So this model is really great at predicting sales. So that's where it's like, I got to throw my biases out the window, not focus so much on like, I'm trying to predict, say, Gretzky cards. Really, I'm predicting a sales product. So that's where it's like, okay, I know this model's going to work. Uh, the more specific caveats on those assumptions on financial behavior, uh, player performance, I do that through scoring models. Uh, so instance, I have an NFL propensity score that I presented at the national and it takes player performance and tries to predict if trading card values will be above average. And what's really interesting about that it tells us behaviors about collectors as a whole that we might not know. And sometimes it could be like, yeah, Tom, you didn't need to run that model. But what I like to think is here's some data background for you, you know, some power to your punch of just those questions that keep you up at night. Okay, man. Lots, lots there. I wish, I wish I could ask a, a really smart sounding question to build off that, but I'm just going to admit that I can't. Most of that was somewhat over my head. But what I did catch you say was that you will build a player 
performance model, which I guess then feeds into the overall direction the hobby is going, your your all your assumptions, all the everything else, all the data that you're using to build into the future. How let me ask you this, generally speaking, you know, we see lots of charts ever, you know, ever since the the advent of card ladder and other data tools out there and the the really the the rise of of Instagram for the hobby and the ability to just put out these quick little graphics. We see a ton of them. How, you know, how much does historical data drive the future? Like if you, cause I'm sure you've got these, this, I'm not saying I'm sure I'm going to assume you've got some weightings that you apply to different types of input data inputs that are going into your model. You know, if you go back in time, in car on card values, you know, you go back 20, 30 years, you're going to see lots of cycles, lots of ups and downs, you know, and of course the biggest one came during the pandemic. So how, how heavily weighted is past performance and the, the timing of the cycles, the, the, the time between cycles, the, and how that has changed over the years. How important is that to your predictive models? Yeah. And see, look at you. You're asking the smart questions. So that is 100% like the seasonal element that comes into play. That's the best value in using historical data is to pick up like the seasonality. Now, let's say if you had a data science who data scientist who also isn't a collector like me, like if you didn't collect, you would answer your question, Jeremy, where it's just, Past data, 100% predictive of future data. But when you collect, you know it's more nuanced than that. (laughs) You know, the social media aspect is interesting. I'm just now starting to pull in Google Trends, and I'm finding that's been highly predictive. But it's not that positive correlation like you would think. It's positive correlated that there's more action in the market, but not with values. And what I mean by that is you can scrape Google trend data and you can search, you know, Gretzky cards and you can see the trend over time interest coming in. It kind of flip flops with his overall value because now there's more buyers out there and suppliers. So I think of all that interesting data to throw in. Historical is an element, but I try not to make it like the only thing because then I'm not providing any value and I'm forgetting, you know, it's a hobby. So same, same question, but on player performance now, because, uh, you know, again, I'm going to make an assumption here. If you are coming up with a predictive model on baseball cards five years from now, you're pro- I'm assuming you're going to be basing that on certain players that you, that, that are, you know, under the hood of the analysis sort of thing. So for an active player, how, and even, I guess the question would apply to active or retired players, how, you know, in simple terms, please, Tom, how do you use their most recent stats? How do you use a retired player's, like, career stats to predict what might happen to their values down the road is is there is the player's information as important as the overall trends in the hobby or not yeah so what my models have shown is that player performance alone you can predict about 70% of value now ah. some people might say that 30% that's a pretty big gap And a lot of it comes because of vintage players, right? There's no recency. There's nothing they can do stat-wise that can drive it through. But another, like, good thing from the models is that accolades matter, right? So if you have a player who, like, look at basketball, right? Like Stockton's assist record. (laughs) If we put, like, a high value on that, you can get a pretty good prediction for Stockton's prices over time. Now, what's interesting is it's going to always lean more to like that recent behavior, active players, just because if you believe performance really does matter, and that could be like a heated topic we have, 
you know, like, okay, yeah. Retired players can't do anything to help it, but you can make the argument they could do something to hurt it, right? Yeah. You know, now you're in the public's eye, public public impression. Or think about, like, when a retired player all of a sudden starts signing more autographs than they ever have before. What yeah. does it do to autograph value? And then how do you and, – and that's something that is, will be really hard for you to predict unless you have some inside information, right? And you said, you know, player, retired players can do something to hurt their value. Uh, some players go into broadcasting. Look at look at Shaquille O'Neal. He's been there for a while. Some players go into coaching. Patrick Waugh, you know, Hall of Fame. Some will argue the best goalie in the history of hockey is now coaching the New York Islanders. Like that's pretty that, – that puts you right into the forefront. That could help or hurt. Depends on, I guess, how he does and uh, and how he's perceived by the public in his new role. Um yeah, man, this 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 is some pretty complex stuff. I think let's go. Let's say we got some questions and comments here. First of all, want to shout out Rage. What's going on, Rage? Good to see you. Zach Swisher says what I'm thinking. Triple exponential smoothing. <laughs> <laughs> Jameson Riley says collect what you, collect what you like and favorite players and predicting future value is meaningless. Well, it's not meaningless in our hobby. It's not meaningless to everybody. It's meaningless if 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 you're if you just collect and don't care about value, then. I'm sure it's meaningless. I have cards in my collection, Tom, where future value is completely meaningless because I didn't in, I didn't deploy significant money into them. They're they're my projects. They're fun. They're you know. But I've got money. I've got cards where I've put significant money. What is significant to me into cards? I'm you know I'm not thinking about it that much. But I'd be curious to see. I'm curious to know what they'll end up being worth down the road when me or my estate do dispose of them. Uh, but I hear what Jameson is saying, and I think that's a sentiment that's shared. A lot of people are just tired of the talk about values of cards, which has really come about with all the data tools and with the advent or the the, the really the 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 growth of social media. Um, anything to say to that? Yeah, uh, what I would say is, you know, the hobby is an ecosystem, right? I mean, two collectors and your personal collection, you know. You don't need analytics. You don't need data, right? I can do one of the greatest anti-analytics rants ever. <laughs> Any analyst can do it for you. Now, there are people, and you have to, you know, admit they are part of the hobby. Some people do it for a business. Flippers, sellers, breakers, right? And they are the ones that will gravitate to some of the tools I put out there. Right. Some of the stuff I do for collectors, like everything I do is not always value based. <laughs> right. There are some quality collecting stuff I do, you know, unfortunately for those who don't like it so heavy on sales data, sales data is one of like the easiest data to scrape hmm. that's readily available. Yeah. yeah. Like now, if there was more like collector sentiment, that would be amazing as well. But yeah, collectors, <laughs> like all the teams I just mentioned that I collect, like I'm not like tracking John Stark's cards <laughs> for <Okay>. myself. <laughs> here, let's go to some questions here. Uh, Skeppy says, are any of your analytical tools subjective or are they all based on objective numbers? How do you separate your opinions from what the data says? Yeah, so I like to bring in social media data. Like what I said, um, there's always going to be, I have to actually articulate the analysis, interpret the results. So, but removing my own bias, I try to put in approaches that will do that for me. Uh, sometimes I'll do random samples, stratified samples to like make sure I'm not putting that bias into like which cards I analyze. So make sure there's free focus there. But yeah, sometimes the results is head scratching to me as a collector sometimes, you know, like, cause you're testing hypothesis and sometimes my results will make me upset because it's like, Ooh, I collect in that area. What do I, I'm predicting a 45% decline over the next three months. It's like, Ugh. Yikes. It's, Yikes. Sometimes yeah. the truth hurts. <laughs> we got Courtney Reckless has joined us as Tom is a brilliant, goes on to say that it's amazing 
that he puts all this out on his site for people for free. I think that's very nice. The professor says that Thomas quoted throughout the hobby, including the Marvel community. Michael says, very interesting. Great get. Thank you, Michael. We've got some requests for you to actually give people what's going to happen in the future. Uh, I'm just going to ignore those comments and questions right now, guys. I'm sorry, but we're not here to to tell you what cards are going up and down, more to learn about him. But the beautiful thing is, is that now you know about Tom, if you didn't already, and you can follow him, you can go to his website, you can read his reports and get all that information uh, later on. But I do want to bring on one just for fun. JH says, who, who is your model to go down the most? Wembenyama or Connor Bedard? <laughs> I'd say probably Wemby can only go down from here. There you go. There you go. Doesn't, but that answer seems like it's off the that's top. That's the collector like, top. Yeah, that's not based on your data, and that's why we're not going to get into any more of those questions uh, today, unfortunately. <laughs> guys, of course, and, uh, and read his reports. They are there on the website. Uh, Bobby Burrell, how much is based on investment over passion? Does that, is, does that question really, does that apply? I'm not sure. I'll let you decipher. Uh, I'm going to answer it how I think the question is, Bobby. So, like, when I started this, I probably started, as most collectors do, is, like, you kind of make a pro forma Excel ROI sheet for yourself. (laughs) And then when I started thinking, well, what if I really applied most of my real experience to it and start making products and tools for people so i'd say it started as an investment most was based on investment um then every once in a while i do an analysis for myself passion pieces <laughs> and you'll yeah. you'll see it on the site for free it's like okay tom's getting really jokey with the results here <laughs> like it's just he's opinionated but yeah, yeah i think it started as investment but there's some passion comes in there's got to be, there's passion in what you're doing, yeah. but I think the question is more about the model. Is there a way to reflect passion in the model to drive the results? But again, I mean, that's, that's such a, such a subjective sort of thing. It's, it's abstract. How do you really measure passion? I don't know. I'm sure if anyone can figure it out, maybe it's you. Um, let's do the vintage spotlight segment. Leighton Sheldon is in the back room. I'm going to bring him up, Tom. You've got a question for him. It's a question I think we've talked about before. I love this question. If Craig's Cards is watching or listening, you'll be interested. Let's bring him on. Leighton Sheldon, just collecting vintage breaks. Welcome to the show, buddy. How are you tonight? And please meet Tom. Um, excellent. Thanks for having me. Uh, how are you today, Tom? Doing great. Great to meet you, Leighton. It's great to and meet I you as well. do have a question for you. So hopefully it's not too long-winded, but who or what? should determine the cutoff date for vintage sports cards. Like, for example, should there be a specific cutoff date or should cards be segmented by historical error or generational sports talent? I mean, I see people just throwing vintage all over the place. That's a great question, Tom. And as Jeremy alluded to, I think we've discussed it, you know, a little bit before. So I'll try to be, you know, succinct. Um, it really depends, Tom, but, you know, for me personally, I like to use 1979 and that 1980 time period. It kind of just really works well uh, across at least the major sports. Um, but, you know, I also would say it depends on, right, like when you grew up, when you collected. So for whatever it's worth, 1980s cards right now are several decades old. Sorry to make us all a little bit older in the room right now, uh, but that's the reality of the situation. So. Who should decide? I'm not sure. Maybe the people who are also deciding on the YouTube Hall of Fame or, you know, the Collecting Hall of Fame. But the joking aside, it's a great question, Tom. Um, but that's that's my best take on it. Great. What do you think, and, Tom? Yeah. So obviously, yeah, like, I'm asking the question because I'm looking for, like, parameters of a model to where I can cut it I off. Yeah. I mean, I was having the conversation, actually, uh, with my older brother today. We went to um, just a local show here the tampa card show today and we kind of settled on an answer in our head where it's like okay maybe like 30 years is a good like break point and then we kind of chuckled a little with each other too because it's like could we really imagine like luca silver prisms 
be considered vintage. Oh. And then we're thinking like, well, what about like the 15 year old kid that's collecting it? And then eventually they'll be, you know, in their forties <laughs> just makes us laugh a little, but hopefully we're lucky enough to see it <laughs> become <Yeah>. vintage. <laughs> Do you have any thought like Tom, for me, I, you know, to me, vintage goes up until the end of the eighties. And I know, I know I'm in probably in the minority here with that, with that particular viewpoint, but that's when, that's when packs started changing from, from wax packs, no, no more gum, you know, upper deck and all the, and the junk wax era kind of begins. Uh, But it might also depend on sport. I think there can be a bit of an argument made that, you know, maybe baseball vintage is up until Layton's time, the end of the eighties, uh, maybe basketball, football, hockey. Basketball is a weird one because there wasn't much in the first half of the 80s at all. So it makes it easier to say vintage ends at the end of the 70s and starts in like 85 if we're ignoring star, which we shouldn't. But if we are, you know, I could see it. I could see that be. But for your purposes, Tom, do you and building the model that you're thinking of right now, do you need one year where vintage ends or can you? work it so that it might be different by sport or a range of years even yeah it's definitely the latter like i can customize the models but it's a really interesting conversation because i'm in the group think of that vintage versus modern needs to be segmented out and then be handled differently right like the most i think where it's transparent that cutoff is baseball because it's uh, I'm building a propensity model for baseball players right now in my football model. I have some retired players to try and predict active looking like retired, but just baseball cards, vintage its own world. <laughs> like I cannot, like, I know it's not going to be predictive at all. You know, there's a lot of set completionists and, you know, Baseball cards, people will say, like, transcends all sports card collecting. That's why, like, the question's really interesting to me and why I think, like, my models should be and are at least adaptable. Like, I don't think anyone envies me right now trying to tackle baseball. (laughs) I don't think so. Well, here, a couple of comments. Mark Santucci says, some say 30 years. Well, that's 95. So, I, you know, I don't know that I'm there, but I eventually we'll we might be there bob boozle says let's call 80s and 90s the retro era i mean that's a that's not a bad starting point maybe there's some discussion to be had from that and, and we get somewhere bobby says vintage is when they still had gum in packs for consumers and that's kind of where i look to and also what were the packs made of wax paper and then they turned to foil and plastic and other things and then they just come out in these fancy boxes and tins and all sorts of stuff so uh, deep value says you know montana and older so he's talking that's that's a football answer. And um, for perhaps that one uh, makes sense for football. Uh, Leighton, Leighton, any further comments on that? And then what question did you come with for our friend Tom? I will no further comments about that. But the question I have for you, Tom, is based on your work so far with all of your models. And I realize you just asked me about vintage, so I'm not sure how much you've uh, dove into you know, the whole sector. But speaking of the vintage sector, in your humble opinion, based on your models, where do you think or which sector of the vintage market do you think over the next 12 months and then over the next five years do you see the most upside in? Yeah, so uh, hockey for sure. Um, and that's really based on looking where collectors are and what it's been doing just to modern hockey. I think eventually it's going to get to modern baseball levels and then vintage baseball levels are going to pick up and the reason why that is when i first started modeling hockey data its curve and predictions was almost identical to baseball at the time and baseball for my predictions was always like the solid go-to and it was weird and exciting too to see like hockey get to there and then speaking with hockey collectors you know, very knowledgeable, you know, another thing I like to see, you know, baseball collectors, very knowledgeable, and they were also willing to help, 
as well. So that's kind of like the non-data factors I can throw into the models, kind of get an idea, a feel for the collector field to start playing with levers and play with parameters. But definitely hockey to me seems the most growth in vintage. I have a, I have a question that, you know, kind of involves both of you um, because your, your, your data sources that you use, Tom, for your models must be coming from public sales. Yet a guy like Layton has a, a bricks and mortar store, Just Collect. He's got, you know, he sells on online. He sells at card shows along with many others watching and in the hobby, of course. Is your data... Is your data compromised at all because it doesn't include that whole pool, all those transactions that likely don't outnumber what goes on online? Well, maybe they do. I'm not sure. But that are still a big part of the hobby and would likely, I think, maybe bring up your forecast because card shops can often get more for a card than than any old, you know, hobbyist can that isn't that doesn't have the overhead let's say um what, what do you think of that and and from from Leighton I guess my my question to Leighton on this is like what do you think Leighton because a lot of the you know a lot of the data out there that we that we were consuming other hobbyist anal analyses of them including Tom's models we're seeing graphs we're seeing all these things happen but they don't include a big segment of the hobby at this point in time. So Leighton, do you, do you, would you like to see them do that? I'd like to hear Leighton's answer first, like because he's in it, he's on, he's, he's out, he's out there on the front lines, you know, every day. And then Tom, you're collecting the data, but Leighton, if you know about what Tom is doing, do you, do you think that data from, you know, the, the non online platforms should be included or would help? I think it's a great question, Jeremy. I do think that the data should be included. I think that the data should help where the data would help. The issue is going to be in the execution. So someone's going to, like Tom's building models, you'd have to build a model like what Mascot's doing, right? You literally would have to have a platform that you'd have a certified you know, group of members, meaning dealers, et cetera, uh, that would input, um, whether it be they have one sale a week, several sales a week, and it may not be in terms of the total volume of transactions that great, but per your point, Jeremy, I think they're extremely influential. I think that they're a lot of money. And I've heard this term tossed around the industry, more so in gambling, I don't gamble, uh, more than ever before, a sharp. I do feel, and I'd be curious, Jeremy, what you think about this, and Tom, what you think about this. I do feel that maybe the folks who are, who are very wealthy or well-off financially that can purchase some of these substantial cards privately, I wonder if they like it like this, where the data isn't as complete. They can deduce that this particular card or cards is a buy or seems to be moving the direction of that, and they know that the actual whole data pie is incomplete. Um, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts would be on that. Yeah. So it is a huge gap, not only in my modeling work, but just in all the apps that currently track it. Uh, beyond just private sales, also think of international sales. You know, probably the largest market and would probably swing most of the trends, most of the behavior. Uh, just to play devil's advocate a little bit and... You could probably also make the point that it's currently another gap as well. It's just data governance, right? You're putting a lot of ownership on the shop owner or whatever the point of sale is to input that <laughs> sale itself. You know, they might not care about, um, you know, the exact measurement precision of getting it in now if say like a company like mascot or somebody else really put like that was their focus and gathered the data from them like made it easier then we could get it at volumes to where it's usable uh yeah. 
now currently like if it was just like hey your biggest private sale coming into play like my models would identify that as an outlier and like try to smooth it out like that's always going to be an issue but your point on you know say like super collectors we'll call them right and where the advantage is of like hey their sale not being included we've seen (laughs) what happens when they do do public sales right (laughs) Like I think of, you know, Steve Aoki, for example, you know, like he will drive markets almost just, and he's adding to his PC and people kind of forget that, you know, there is some dollar exchange rate you have to do in your head where it's like, okay, his buying power, the super collector's buying power is not the equivalent of, you know, say Tom making a budget. Right. And buying that, so it's a really interesting question, and it's a huge gap. Out there and too. there's a lot of there's a lot of concerns about using that, like like Layton was saying, or you were saying too. I think Tom, the integrity of that data would have to be intensely scrutinized because it it could be fabricated if it's just coming from an individual and not backed up by a uh, by an online marketplace. Even though we know auctions go unpaid, but an- there's so there's the private, yeah. there, there's the private transaction uh, pool of data that is missing from you know all analyses out there, most analyses mm-hmm. out there, if not all of them, including yours. But there's one other bit of data or one other you know input to all this that we very rarely talk about in our hobby that would I think also increase the indices within the hobby, and that is the unknown max bid that was not bumped up against, right? Because if I'm willing to pay $1,000 for a card, but the second highest bidder is only willing to pay 600 and we're transacting on, you know, on an incremental auction platform like an eBay, for example, well, I'm going to win that for 605, yet I was willing to pay 1,000. So why is the value of that card based on the second the, the based on the guy who wants it the second most versus the guy who wants it the most because max bids are never disclosed publicly unless somebody you know screenshots and puts it out there which I've been known to do a couple times just for fun but what do you guys think of that and I, I mentioned what the chat thinks too because you might get a comp out there three grand for whatever card yet the high bidder was willing to go to four or five or whatever. That is unknown, but I think it's important, or maybe maybe it isn't. What do you think, Leighton? Well, I think it's a really interesting question, Jeremy. Do I think it's important? Yes. Do I think that it's, and Tom, I feel like you're much more technical with data, so I'd love to hear your opinion. But I don't, I don't think it's a great indicator of value, and the reason being is because theoretically what you're saying is, and we'll just use something simple, 600, 605, that individual is willing to pay 1,500, the item really isn't worth fifteen hundred, because there might not be anyone else in the world that's willing to pay more than six to five, other than other than the individual. But kind of like what we see with a lot of data and reports, I'd love to see an asterisk next to that card. One person was willing to pay, you know, this, but just because I don't want to forget, even though it's really about the last point, this is a shout out to mascot. I know you've had Ezra on here before. Um, I think, and my guess is they're probably moving in this direction. But it makes sense that the next kind of key pieces of data, Tom, that you're going to be able to obtain for your models will likely be coming from card show sales data that's now starting to happen transactionally because of mascot, meaning they're capturing the card. You have the asking price. I mean, I saw Andy Maddox sold the Jerry West rookie yeah. and a half. So I do agree with you, Jeremy. You have to check the, the data and make sure that it has integrity. But if folks are publishing their cards with prices and they are selling through mascots um, platform, you um, utilize a card shows. I do think that might be a new piece of exciting data that we can start to track, see in Tom's models, maybe see on card ladder, BCP. You know, I think that's really exciting. Yeah. 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 Go ahead, Tom. So the value, I think, in what you're proposing, Jeremy, and I go beyond just like what the true value of what cards should be. 
but think of it i was saying like hey it'd be great if we had like some collector sentiment stats to me that jumps in my head that's a collector sentiment stat now it might be seen as like this is synthetic data right now but if you could capture those max bids and you track them over time you know you get an idea of like the willingness to purchase not sure if you really would incorporate that into the value of like an individual card, but if you're just trying to get like sentiment of the hobby as a whole, you know, I'm sure if you looked at peak pandemic versus now, it'd be a very like interesting story. Like if you're looking like the distribution and how many people are now like, okay, because we're having conversations, I think in our head or with our friends, with collectors, where it's like, you know, everybody's kind of, you know, shifted what they're willing to spend. Larger cards have come down in price. Some are more attainable. Like I think what you're proposing we capture would actually quantify that thought. So I want that data, Jeremy, <laughs> is what I'm getting at. Yeah, and I mean, there's some great comments coming through here. I'm going to try to, there's a ton of comments, or I'm going to try and sort through them really quickly uh so john the basketball guard guy says the value is based on the second most because the guy who won it at the most already got it unless you are in the market for duplass i would argue that the second highest is the market and i that makes a lot of sense because the i i or the highest bidder might have been willing to pay more but you just didn't have to so maybe that isn't the value but then you know another comment Came in here from uh, Linda's first says, great point on the max bid because the old thing is a card is worth what someone is willing to pay for. Well, if I was willing to pay a thousand, but the second old guy, highest bidder was only willing to pay 600, I got it for 605. I feel like I got $395 of savings. I feel like I'm ahead of the game already uh, at that point. And the LGC says max bids would be known with with Dutch auctions. And to, to John's comment, basketball card guys comment here, uh, actually this one over here, you know, one of my responses just in the, in the court and in, in, for the sake of discussion, um, would be, is that sorry, wrong comment, wrong comment from, from John, this one here. Uh, one of my responses to this would be that yes, you know, I was willing to pay more than the other person was, but if we were doing a blind auction, Let's say, let's say, let's say the hobbies run on blind auction. Just put in your highest bid. Well, I'm coming in at a thousand and bidder number two is coming in at 600. I'm not paying 605. In that case, I'm paying a thousand. We don't have that eBay as the biggest platform Mm -hmm. in our hobby does not run that way, but that is a way that some things are sold sometimes. And if that was the case, then the highest bidder, the person who's willing to pay the most, just like Linda's first said, is now the one who determines what that card is worth on that day, on that platform sort of thing. So I don't know that there's a right answer to this, guys. I, I just don't think there is a right answer. I think this is something that in for you, Tom, and the way you run your 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 models and, and all that, it's almost like just a you almost need a whole bunch of like I, I'm not telling you what to do here, but disclaimers or you know, things to consider, that kind of thing. Uh just to paint the full picture so people know because what we see out there as far as data and graphs go it's not complete information it doesn't paint the whole picture and for that reason it can be somewhat misleading but with all that said it might be the best we we have and it might be the best we can possibly have Leighton you're nodding give us a couple thoughts and we'll go to Tom then we'll move on yeah I'm just thinking back to you know let's say like some of the earlier Beckett's and there would always be notes at the top of the set describing like a sale or two or maybe even sentiment and so i mean tom like i said it seems as though you have much more experience in this area than anyone probably either watching the show tonight now or in the future um but i think you're suggesting the same thing just a few minutes ago i think that all the data is great i think that it would be wonderful if mascots listening if they can import completed card show sales data because i could see how excited you were tom and candidly as someone who does this professionally and I'm also a collector, I think that's a big win all around. So those are my closing thoughts on that. How about you, Tom? Anything to add in? I mean, just think about, like, as a 
data professional, how exciting this conversation are is and how we're at this point in the hobby where we're avidly, passionately discussing data we should be getting, true value. Like, it's exciting for me. I know it's probably annoying to others where it's like, oh, my goodness, what happened to just, you know, collecting what we love? But there's tools out there. There's people who are applying, you know, their career, their life passions to it. And it's just, let's get creative. <laughs> you know, let's have the arguments. What's true value? Like, this is great. <laughs> It's like the it's like the vintage question. There, I don't think there's a right answer. It's just yeah. I like I, I'm with there's, you. There's no wrong way to eat a Reese's, man. Yeah, that's just it. So. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's uh, let's wrap up the the Leighton Sheldon Vintage Spotlight segment. Leighton, thanks for jumping on here, guys. Follow Leighton on Instagram, Leighton underscore Sheldon, and just underscore collect. And of course, his podcast, Trading Card Therapy, Leighton. Thanks for joining. Anything you'd like to announce before you roll off? Uh, two things. So one, uh, I apologize, but I'm not going to be able to make next week's show, so I'll miss everyone. But of course, we'll be back the week after. But closing on a higher note, this is very exciting, Jeremy. I will be at the April Toronto show. Oh. Hopefully, I'll be there with you on Thursday night at your tribal council meeting. Yeah. Uh, if I get the invite, and I'll be there Thursday and Friday flying out Saturday morning. So I'm really excited about that. Oh, that's great. And I, I'm going to just let everybody know the Toronto Expo is April 25th to 28th or 26th to 29th, whatever it is. It's the it's the the Wednesday to the Sunday or the Thursday to the Sunday and the Thursday. It's Thursday to Sunday, Thursday night. I, I organize an event at a Jack Astor's. We get the whole their whole bar. Well, we get their whole room. It's a big room, fits seats about 100. And it's a nice kind of just networking meet people come have a have a meal have a few drinks after the show ends on the thursday night and uh everybody is invited you know it is there is capacity so you got to get there early enough to get in but uh we've been we've been kind of filling up for the last few uh versions of it but we've been doing this for 15 years and this will be another one it's already booked to go so i'll be putting that on instagram we'll be talking about it at the expo thursday night jack astors for uh what, what I'm, I just call like a nice networking expo event. Thanks for reminding me, Leighton. Look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for joining. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Sounds great. It was nice meeting you, Tom. Great meeting you. All right. All right, Tom. Let's let's keep on going here. I uh, We got so many great comments here from the chat. So let's just go to comments. I've got my notes. I'm going to just kind of ignore them for now. And we're going to go to some comments that have come in we're gonna go back to the vintage conversation we're gonna kind of go back in time a little bit here uh 86 says i think with the with new vintage i think the new vintage goalpost has moved to 1989 kids today consider 90s to be vintage so there's some uh, further comment on that here's a great question from the currency project uh tommy says what have you found to be the most surprising bit of data about the hobby that you've come across since you started yeah, what's always been uh, surprising to me is how different, not going to call them markets, but more categories are elastic to different data that'll come in. Like uh, basketball's been like very sensitive to player performance. And I think it really starts talking about like the collecting segments out there. Uh, football, pretty solid, you know. Uh, but still goes against like the narrative you'll usually hear about like, Oh, like prospecting the next Brady, the next Mahomes, the next, but like the data is what I always imagined it would be. It's like, Oh, you should probably just stick to the goats, you know? And yeah, you know, which ties into another comment that came through here. Um, which I'm going to try to find here really. There there it is. Dan's Vintage says, isn't it true that collecting to build your PC based on what you love and let the chips fall as they may financially? So it's more of that, that collector-focused comment here. And listen, I think that that's the history. Of the, the hobby was built on collecting in the first place. It's not just about that anymore. Like we have to, all of us, you know, longtime collectors, we have we just have to like 
be aware of what the reality is today. And for better, or for worse, like it or not, it's just what it is. And there's a lot of people who are in this for the money. They are into cards just for money. And some of them are very vocal about it now. And there's room for that. I, I think there's room for it. I mean, there's room for that for me. I may, I'm allowing, for my experience, I'm okay with there being room for that. Some people hate it. And, and I understand that too. We're all entitled to, to how we want this hobby to be. But at the end of the day, no one person is going to be able to control what the hobby is. So either embrace it or complain about it or just adapt and live, live within it. This isn't like this. I'm not saying this at Dan right now. I'm just saying it at the whole collecting versus investing kind of battle that we've had in this hobby now for quite some time. But again, he says, let the chips fall as they may financially. I don't know if I'm, if I'm collecting a card and I need to spend again, significant money on that card. I'm going to be, I'm personally, I'll admit it. I'm going to be concerned about what its future value is going to be because that money could have gone to bettering my family's life, you know? So that's where I fall. How about you, Tom? Anything to say about that? Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.